Father God, would you please now speak through my words. Speak to our hearts and speak to our minds. Humble us this morning, we pray, that you might exalt us. Amen. Well, I wonder how you see yourself in comparison to other people. Uh, Could I have the first... um, Uh, These are my great drawings. As you can see, drawing is is one of my abilities. But I wonder if you see yourself like this. You are the red person and everybody else are the blue people. It's all about me. Other people exist to serve me. Of course, very few of us would admit that this is how we see ourselves. But I have to say that if I look at myself, then I know that this is the default position. This is how I operate. And in fact, the world encourages us to operate here like this. It tells us that we can build the universe around us, that we're worth it, that we must assert our rights. And even if we're in pain, whether that's physical or emotional, then the I can get even bigger and other people get smaller. It's much easier to be gracious and humble before other people when we're feeling well. And one of the astonishing things about Jesus is that as he hangs on the cross in excruciating agony, he thinks of others, of his mother, of the criminal beside him, even of the people crucifying him. Or perhaps we operate like this. Um, we're, we're all equal. Now, this is politically correct, and I have to say it is morally correct. Jesus says here, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Interests, by the way, does not appear in the original. The original says each of you should look not only to your own but also to others. So interests is a filler word. It could include your possessions, well-being, comfort, salvation, whatever. In other words, it's another version of the golden rule. Do to the other person what you would have them do to you. Or as Jesus put it another way, love your neighbour as yourself. But if that's how we're to behave to others... Paul is suggesting here something that is far, far more radical and that we should have a very different picture in our minds. We need to think of ourselves in a different way. In humility, he says, consider others better than yourselves. This is radical. It's not saying, of course, that we're to consider everybody else as being able to do everything else better than us. I mean, there there are some who will always be hopeless at mathematics, and there will be some who are genii at mathematics, and it would not make sense to get somebody who is hopeless at mathematics, you know, to do the, the calculations for a lunar landing, you'd probably end up somewhere else. And there will be some who will always have two left feet, and there will be some who are incredibly gifted, and it would be foolish not to play your best team for the cup final. Now, 
nor is this passage saying that we're to consider others as morally better than ourselves. Although, one of the interesting things is that as we grow in our Christian life, we become increasingly aware of how sinful we are. Outwardly, our actions may appear good. All that shows is that we are great conformists. But inwardly, we become increasingly alert to how corrupt our motives are. So Paul could write, I am the worst of sinners. And I guess when he wrote that, he really thought that was the case. And many of the saints would see themselves as corrupt beyond imagination. John Stott, um, who is a, 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 a Christian leader who has influenced so many of us, an immensely godly man, was introduced to an audience in the most glowing of terms. Uh, and then he stood up to speak and he said, I'm really grateful to so-and-so for that introduction, he said. But, he said, if you could look into my heart, you would spit in my face. And of course this verse is not saying that we need to be like um, Uriah Heep. You know, Uriah Heep who goes around saying, I'm dreadfully humble, I'm dreadfully humble, I'm dreadfully humble. Because he kept on saying it, he wasn't. Telling people he was dreadfully humble was actually his way of asserting himself over others. But what Paul is saying here is that we are to consider other people irrespective of their or our gifts, irrespective of their or our achievement, irrespective of their or our age, irrespective of their or our education, not as people who are equal to us, but as people who are worthy of greater honour than ourselves. As I said, this is radical stuff. It's not saying that you should be a doormat and allow others to walk all over you. Allowing another person to walk all over you actually isn't loving them. It's not allowing them to grow into the dignity and the into the dignity of the person who God created them to be. Nor is it saying you should not exercise your gifts. If you're good at something, you use it. But it is saying that you should use your life and your gifts in the service of the other, to build them up so that they become the man or woman of God who he created them to be. It is to be their servant, not for their sake, well, partly for their sake, but for God's sake. And it's to treat them as someone who is worthy of greater honour than yourself. This was a major part of Jesus' teaching Jesus talks about going to a banquet. He sees how people jostle for the best places. And he says to them, when you go, don't go to the highest places. Because when you go there, they'll ask you to move down to a lower place. And you'll be shamed. Instead, he says, choose the lower place. Uh, there was a lovely moment in, in Downton Abbey last week. Uh, when, when the delegation r arrives from the village at the house, um, 
uh, Lord Grantham thinks they're going to ask him to chair the committee setting up uh, a memorial for those who had fallen in the First World War. And he's rather puffed up about it. And then they come in and they say, oh, no, we, we just want a bit of land from you. We actually, he said, want, want your butler, Carson, to chair the committee. Oh, how the mighty are fallen. And when Jesus spoke about greatness, he talks of how the world considers greatness in terms of lording it over others. But greatness in God's eyes is very different. It's about being a servant. And he uses a child as a visual aid. He puts a child in the middle of them. And he says society may consider this child to be a nobody. But you need to be people who welcome, who honour this child. You need to be a people who honour nobodies. And of course there was that occasion when he knelt down and washed his disciples' feet and he said, if I, your Lord and Master, have done this, you also should do this to one another. What an amazing society it would be if everyone considered the next person as worthy of more honour than themselves. If teachers considered the children they were teaching as worthy of more honour. As children considered parents as worthy of more honour. As customers going into the shop treated the shopkeeper as worthy of more honour as employers looked at their employees and treated them with more honour. So how do we get there? How do we become people who really do consider others as better, as worthy of more honour than ourselves? And here Paul gives us three steps. First of all, we look at Jesus. We look at Jesus and we imitate him. Verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Jesus knew who he was. He knew that he was the eternal son of God, equal to God, but he doesn't take advantage of that. It's, it's so easy to take advantage of our position and status or wealth, to jump the queue, to get our case looked at sympathetically to get preferential treatment. If anyone could have done it, if anyone had the right to do it, it was Jesus. He could have had the most wonderful life on earth which could have gone on forever with the people he loved with him and never leaving him and people doing exactly what he wanted and he never needed to fear that it would be taken away from him. But he gave it all up. In obedience to God, he became a fully human, like us. He was not born in a palace, but in a cowshed. He began his life as a refugee. He had astonishing powers and abilities, and yet he gave up everything in order to take up the life of an itinerant preacher without income or home. He chose to give up the possibility of having another human person love him in a unique way, or of having a family. And he ended up giving his life. It wasn't taken from him. He gave it up. 
for your sake and for my sake. Verse 8, he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He died for us so that we might become the men and women who God created us to be. So look at the example of Jesus. If he was prepared to give up the riches of heaven for our sake, shouldn't we be prepared to give up our kitsch for the sake of obedience to him and love for others? And then secondly, we allow God to work in us, to change us. Verse 12 and 13 of these verses of this chapter are astonishing. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. God is at work in you. The reason that you are here today is not because you woke up this morning and thought, oh, I'll go to church. It's not because you think, oh, I always go to church on Sundays. It is actually because God has brought you here. The reason that you begin to desire to live like Jesus is not because you're a good person and you feel you know you want to. It is because God has put that desire in you. The reason that you have the power to begin to live in a God-pleasing way is because God has given you the power. Your salvation is like a seed. God planted that seed in you and you became a Christian. It's incredibly precious. It's the seed which will transform you so that you will become like Jesus Christ. It is the seed that will transform you so that you have an inner beauty and an outer radiance. It's the seed which will take you through death. It is the seed of eternal life. Imagine if someone gives you a vase. They give it to you. It's a lovely vase. You pick it up and you look at it and you hold it and you say to them, thank you very much. And then they say to you as they walk away, oh, by the way, that is a Ming Dynasty vase. And at its last estimation, it was worth 21 million pounds. Can I suggest the way you hold that vase would change? You would hold that vase with fear and trembling. The salvation that we have been given is far more precious than that. That is why we work it out with fear and trembling. Alec Matea writes in his commentary on the Philippians, There is a fear of God of which we know all too little and which we lose at our peril. A godly fear growing out of recognition of weakness and of the power of temptation. A filial dread of offending God. This is not the fear of the lost sinner before the Holy One, but the fear of a true child before the most loving of all parents. Not the fear of what he might do to us, but of the hurt we might do to him. 
We need to allow this salvation that we possess to be worked out in our lives to transform us into the image of the eternal Son of God. And practically that means listening to God and to his Spirit, being led by the Spirit. It means spending time with him. Remember our challenge this year to encourage everybody to spend 15 minutes every day with God. It means being obedient to him. Paul speaks about the beginning of the work of the Spirit in the believer's life. In verse 1 of this chapter, encouragement, comfort, knowing the fellowship of the Spirit, sparks of tenderness and compassion. And it is the Spirit who is in you, who, if you are led by the Spirit, will continue to transform us so that we become like-minded, sharing the mind of Christ having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. And it's the spirit who will begin to change us so that we don't see the world from our perspective, but from his perspective. And we don't see other people from our perspective, but from his perspective. Someone said the main evidence that we are growing in Christ is not exhilarating prayer experiences, but steadily increasing humble love for other people. So we look at Jesus. We allow the life of God that he's put in us to begin to work itself out. Thirdly, we live in hope. The man or woman who humbles him or herself before another will be exalted, not necessarily here and now, but there and then. It's one I call the divine V. Could I have the um, next picture? Do you see how this sort of echoes the passage? Jesus was equal with God, yet he humbled himself, he became a servant, he comes down, he became human, he died, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him. Interestingly, when we say the creed and we talk about life of Jesus in a few minutes' time, look and see that V that is there. Do you wish to be vindicated, to be lifted up, to be glorified? Then consider the person sitting next to you or behind you or in front of you. Don't look at them because you'll get embarrassed and they'll get embarrassed. Just think of them. They may be someone you don't know. Alternatively, they may be your child or boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or wife or parent or friend. Can you begin to think of them as worthy of more honour than yourself? Can you begin to serve them so that they begin to become the person who God created them to be? so that they discover their God-given dignity. Because it's as we put ourselves here, right down at the bottom, in the cross, on our knees with a towel washing the feet of our neighbour, so God will raise you here with the Lord Jesus Christ. Father God, would you work in us? And help us 
to know, not just to think, but to know that the other is worthy, is better than us and worthy of more honour. Work in us and make us like the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.